Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and today we're spending a therapist's hour with environmental activist, speaker, author, and a leading voice of cultural dissent, Derek Jensen. Jensen unflinchingly exposes civilization as perpetrator of injustice, exploitation, and destruction. He urges us to do whatever is necessary to bring civilization down. He speaks to packed venues and is award-winning author of such highly original works as A Language Older Than Words, The Culture of Make-Believe, Endgame Volumes 1 and 2, Listening to the Land, Strangely Like War, and Walking on Water. He co-authored Railroads and Clear Cuts and Welcome to the Machine, Science, Surveillance, and the Culture of Control. Speaking from his home in Northern California, here is Derek Jensen. Your books are so full of truth-telling. It's really actually quite astonishing the degree of honesty and willingness to share your vision. And in my experience, the only people who are really in a position to speak in the way that you do have done a lot of inner work and have come to terms within themselves to a great extent. So I wonder if you would be willing to share with our audience something about how you prepared and developed that spiritual fortitude, if you will, to speak the truth and stand in that ground. Well, thank you for putting it that way. And I think part of the process, at least for me, was that, you know, I've gone through any number of circumstances where I didn't speak up and where I still don't speak up. And I know how I feel, even if it's scary, to speak up. And I know how it feels, even when it's scary, to to not speak up. And, like, just today, actually, I got a note from someone who had read some books, and he sent me a note a few days ago asking some simple questions, which I answered, like, in a sentence or two. And so now... And this happens all the time. Now, you know, he sends me this long note with all these questions about, do you think I should get vaccinated? And do you think there'll be civil war in the United States? And, <laughs> and yes. what I'm going to do is I'm going to ignore the, the the letter. But there's a part of me that, that wants to write back and say, you know, do your own research. And, you know, if I answered all these questions, I wouldn't have time. So, I mean, I don't have to – telling the truth does not mean you have to be rude. and doesn't mean you have to be mean. Years ago, I was asked at a talk why when I – teach, I've written a book about teaching also, and when I taught, I would never give negative feedback to my students. I taught solely through praise. At the same time, I'm this this unstinting critic of those who are killing the planet. And some of the audience said, what's the difference? Why do you do that? Why don't you, you know, praise praise them into becoming good people or something? And I immediately knew the answer, which is all about power, which is if I have power over someone, it's my responsibility to use that power only to help them. And if, on the other hand, I see someone else who has power over someone and I see them misusing that power or abusing the person over whom they have power, it's my responsibility to stop them using any means necessary. The reason I say this is because this culture is just so strange that even something as simple as telling the truth ends up, I guess we can't really blame on the culture. I think that that's inherent to all. You know, we, 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 we discern. You know, that we, Here's the point. Um, no matter what culture you're in and no matter what species you're in, you know, there's always that discernment about, you know, what's appropriate in this moment. I think that you got to something really important, and that is what is happening in the moment when somebody holds the power? How are they using that power? Well, I think that's absolutely central. It and is. I think that's part, so critical. Part of the difficulty with us in this culture is that so often we are so heavily identified with the oppressor that we can't see the situation for what it is. And there's a bazillion examples. There's one pretty obvious example um, that's happened in the news recently is Rome Polanski just got arrested finally. And when he was 45 years old, he plied a 13-year-old girl with alcohol and part of a quaalude and then raped and sodomized her over her objections. Mm-hmm. And first off, there's a bazillion people who are defending him and who are outraged that he was arrested. And second, when most of the news articles do talk about it, they almost never use the word rape. What they do is they said he had sex with a 13-year-old, which 
a 45-year-old having sex with a 13-year-old is rape anyway. But even set that aside, what happened was was rape. And I mean, it was not merely statutory rape, merely in quotes, but it was also rape. But they don't use that word. And we see the same thing on the larger scale where it's killing the planet, which is in terms of identification with those processes and those, those abusive processes that are killing the planet is that what do all of the so-called solutions to global warming have in common? What they all have in common is they take industrial capitalism as a given, and the natural world is that which must conform to industrial capitalism. So Al Gore, Al Gore, Newt Gingrich, you know, Obama, it doesn't matter. Anybody, any of those proposed solutions, um, Lester Brown, and Lester Brown is working on Plan B to save civilization. Mm-hmm. You know, or, or even this guy as great as, as Peter Montague did used to do Rachel's newsletter on Toxic, a wonderful newsletter, and Peter's a great guy. And even he could say about the plan to, to sequester carbon by burying it underground that it's a really bad idea because if it all leaks out suddenly, quote, it could disrupt civilizations. We know it. I was like, no, Peter, if if it, if it comes out, I mean, if it comes out all at once, it could kill life on the planet. And the wonderful thing about the global warming predictions, but nobody ever talks about this, they're all based on a continuation of the oil economy as usual. Yeah. And they're not based on ending civilization. I'm fully confident that if we ended civilization, if we brought down civilization, that the planet would recover. But that is unthinkable because within any abusive dynamic, whether we're talking about a family dynamic or a social dynamic, everything, every action, every moment, every thought is set up to protect the abuser. And it's the same on the global scale. You know, R.D. Lang had three rules of a dysfunctional family, which are rule A is don't. Rule A1 is rule A does not exist. And rule A2 is never discuss the existence or non-existence rules A, A1, or A2. <laughs> so within an abusive family, like my own when I was a child, we could talk about anything we wanted except for the violence that we had to pretend wasn't happening. You know, we, had, we couldn't talk about the fact that we couldn't talk about the violence, and so on and so on. Yeah, I read Lang's Knots one time, and I thought, oh, my gosh, has he got this nailed. Yeah, absolutely. And so now, finally, to your question, the growth work is, you know, I'm, I'm 48 now, and in some ways I spent my 20s doing nothing. I knew I didn't want to get a regular job, and I wanted to be a writer, and I became a beekeeper. I, I was a commercial beekeeper. It was extremely hard work. I ran about 300 hives, the hardest work I've ever done in my life. But I wanted to do that so I could become a writer, but I wasn't doing any writing. And also, as time I was in beekeeping, I spent just sort of, you know, sitting by a river reading novels and just hanging out. And at the time, it seemed like I was doing nothing. But in retrospect, you know, I later asked my mom why she never, you know, pushed me too hard to get a regular job, even though I wasn't making very much money as a beekeeper. And, you know, there were all sorts of other things going on. And and she said, you know, I knew that you never had a childhood because of the abuse. I knew that if you're ever going to be happy and productive as an adult, productive not in a capitalist sense, but if you're going to be happy and fulfilled as an adult, that you needed to take a lot of time to figure out who you were. So there was a lot of time in my 20s I spent getting grounded. And then also I had extensive therapy in my 30s, 10 years, and that was also very helpful. I know that some people become therapy addicts. I once asked, about five years into it, I asked my therapist if there had ever been a time, you know, if I had ever done anything that had made him nervous in the therapeutic relationship. He said, you know, at first when you came in, you were learning and you were changing so fast that I thought you were merely being a good child, you know, and you were trying to please me by improving. But then I realized after about a year that you were, in fact, just desperate to change. And I started laughing. I said, of course. I mean, why do you think I came in and I paid you money, you know? (laughs) I'm not going to take, you know, an hour out of every week and also pay you 25 bucks, which is not very much now. You know, I'm not going to do this unless I'm serious. And I don't understand, even understand what you're saying. And he said, well, you wouldn't believe how many people come into therapy because it's something to do as opposed to desperately wanting to change. And I desperately wanted to change. You know, so far as we know, we only live once. And I only live in this form once. And, you know, no matter what happens after we die, I only live in this form once right now. And so I need to take... I don't want to die with books in me. And I don't want to die with honesty left in me. And this culture is killing the planet. And failure is not an option. And I don't want to look back and say, if I would have just done that, you know, maybe the salmon would have survived. Yeah. And 
it is incumbent upon all of us with all the world at stake to do whatever is necessary to stop this culture from killing the planet. We need to do anything we can. And, and when I look back at some of my heroes, you know, Ken Sarawiwa, uh, Zoya Kosmodanyan, Damianskaya, who was a, a Russian partisan in World War II, Klaus von Stauffenberg, John Brown, uh, Matt Turner, Harriet Tubman, uh, Maud Gunn, all of those people did what was necessary in order to push forward their struggles for justice. You know, the world is being killed, and the first thing we need to do to break out of the R.D. Lang knot is to tell the truth. You're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and I'm talking today with unstinting truth-teller, author, and activist Derek Jensen. And then after that, we need to act upon those truths. Yes, and that actually is an activity that is likely, of course, to meet with a lot of resistance and sometimes ostracism. People have been deported, imprisoned, silenced in some way, even killed. I wonder, in your work, if you have come up against that sort of thing and how you've dealt with it. Well, I haven't so much overtly. I've been given a gift for writing, and then I've worked really, really hard. I've spent my late 20s and all my 30s writing crap. (laughs) A lot of people think that they understand that the basketball players have practiced for years and years to become good basketball players, you know, the pros or baseball players or whatever, but they don't understand that to become a good writer or to become a good painter or to become a good gardener, you know, takes years. And, I mean, I've had people write to me and say, Gosh, if I were as lucky as you, I would have had seven books out, too. And, oh, but, you know, I haven't actually written them. And, you know, there's there's a lot of work here. But the point is that at this point, I'm a good enough writer that if I were writing on different subjects, I would probably make a lot more money. But having said that, I've never run into any – I've never had a publisher – I've had magazine publishers try to – not censor me, but to tone me down. But I've never had a book publisher try to tone me down. I've been encouraged there and this is not to say that the silencing doesn't happen you know we all live independent lives and we just have you know some people have good luck in some ways and some people have bad luck in some ways and I've been fortunate in that I had a, I had a chance to sell out early in my career and I had uh, Rares and Clear Cuts and Listening to the Land were the only books that out and I had a Madison Avenue agent one Madison Avenue was our address it was a huge very prestigious literary agency. Oh, yes, you wrote about this. I, I read about yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the story is that I was writing a language older than words, and I sent that to my agent, who wrote back to say that if I took out the family stuff and the social criticism, I'd have a book, <laughs> which is, you know, basically a book. And she made this plea that, take it out, because I think the, the, the other stories you've got in there are really great, and it'll be a bestseller, and I fired her. And... I was 36 years old and, you know, just beginning my career, and I committed career suicide by firing a prestigious literary agent. And on the other hand, um, my the muse has rewarded me greatly for that. That's one reason I'm so prolific is because I've shown the muse that where my loyalty is. Mm-hmm. And that book, I wrote it in 97, and it didn't get published for a couple of years. I was sending it out. I got all sorts of insulting rejection letters and... I got lucky and found a publisher who was interested, a very, very small publisher, um, but feisty. And so, you know, had that not happened, I mean, it would have been very possible for me to have an entirely different life that I was looking at from 1997 to late 1999. I was looking at this life of, you know, I've always wanted to be a writer and I'm going to end up self-publishing my little books and nothing ever happened. I'm never going to get that break because I've destroyed my career by, by not wanting to cover over the truth. But that ended up not happening. And, you know, whether it was the fates or, you know, the universe or whatever. And, you know, God knows what's going on behind the scenes. But on an overt level, I haven't had any state repression. People ask me, you know, you fly? It's like, yeah, I fly across borders. So I've not had any state repression that way. And the way that you attempt to bring civilization down is through your writing. You're not doing any interfering with business. Well, I do, I do above-ground activism. And... I don't do any below-ground activism, and the reason is very simple. is because we have to have a firewall between above-ground and below-ground activities. I've got a big fucking bullseye on my chest, and it's like the IRA and the Sinn Féin. You know, they have to be, they have to be separate. One of the roles of above-ground activists 
in this sense is to uh, call as explicitly as we can for whatever is necessary. I mean, it would be ridiculous for Malcolm X to talk about any means necessary and then to go do underground activities himself because he's got a big bullseye on his chest. If I call for the sorts of transformation that's necessary and then also do illegal acts, I may as well just go down to the police station for recreational mugshots. It's like a friend of mine says, if you're going to be a revolutionary, you can't look like one. And he wears a suit and tie. There needs to be an absolute firewall. People come up to me sometimes. and Like at one talk I did, this guy came up and shook my hand and when I pulled my hand away, there was a little piece of paper in it, and it said, after the talk, let's go fuck some shit up in the parking lot. And it's like, you know, Mr. Fedman, you're not going to get me that easy. That's just silly. That's just security culture 101. Don't ever underestimate the power of the Panopticon and the power of the state, but you need to not respect the power of the Panopticon and the power of the state. You need to be aware of them, but don't let them paralyze you. And so my role, I mean, I don't know anybody else who is, doing the stuff I'm doing. I just did a three-day workshop with Eric McBain, Lee, Eric Keith, um, called Deep Green Resistance. And we do this around the country where we talk about forming a culture of resistance that is willing and able and technically able. We don't talk about technical stuff, though, because that would be crossing the line. That's not our job. Our job is to help organize this to uh, help propagate um, the understanding of what's necessary, the difference between for example, um, and there's an organization up in Bellingham that talks about the difference between bright green and deep green resistance. And so what I'm attempting to do is to lay the groundwork. It's like this. In many of the, the Latin American countries, universities have been hotbeds of revolution. And one of the reasons is because you have there a mixing of the people who have had the leisure and the luxury to theorize. The intelligentsia. The intelligentsia. I like intellectuals a bit, but I don't, I don't really like either one because intelligentsia kind of makes me nervous that it's like they're more intelligent, but they're not. They've had the luxury to sit back and spend three days ruminating on what's the relationship between perceived entitlement, exploitation, and atrocity. Um, but in any case, is the people who've had that luxury mix with the people who have directly felt the iron boot of oppression on their necks. And that mixture is really incendiary. And... My role is to help articulate. I mean, so many people at the DGR workshop we just did, and so many people say this to me all the time, it's like, my God, I hadn't heard of you until about four months ago, and then I heard a radio interview you did, and I suddenly knew for the first time in my adult life that I'm not alone because I've had all these thoughts about this culture is not sustainable. It won't make a trans voluntary transformation, and bicycling won't stop it, and composting won't stop it, but nobody says these things, and... All of a sudden, I realize I'm not crazy. It's the culture that's crazy. And that's my role, is to help with that and then to help them get to that next step and help form those communities, and then they take it from there, which is not to say I don't support whatever is necessary. I absolutely support whatever is necessary to keep the salmon alive and to keep migratory songbirds alive. My alliance is absolutely with them, but we all have different roles to play. Even the IRA at its strongest, only about 2% of the people ever picked up weapons. 98% provided material support and or vocal support. And those roles are just as important. And this is true no matter whether we're talking about a resistance movement of the U.S. military. I mean, a very small percentage of soldiers ever fire weapons in battle. Most of them are mechanics, clerks, typists. You need, you need tremendous support to... to but ultimately, um, are you advocating that uh, violence and force will be the only way to get the job done. Pulled a quote from one of your books, uh, those who destroy won't stop because we live peacefully and they won't stop because we ask nicely. There is one and only one language they understand and everyone here knows what it is, yet we don't speak of it openly. And so would that language be violent? The language is force. Force. And that's different than violence in that... Um, you can have a mass nonviolent movement that still has force. If you've got a million people marching or five million people marching or ten million people marching. So what do you think it would take to put a stop to what's going on? In your vision of what it would really take, what do you see? Well, one thing that needs to happen is the oil infrastructure needs to be destroyed. What we need to do is we need to put our bodies between the burning of carbon fuels and the planet because if we don't do that, the planet burns out. And this culture will not stop. Abusers never stop. And 
those in power never stop. And I mean, it takes someone who is really, really, really dull at this point to not understand that capitalism will not stop on its own. It won't stop exploiting. Let me put it this way. If space aliens were burning up the planet by pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and if they were murdering the oceans, 90% of the large fish in the oceans are gone, and there are parts of the ocean where there's 10 times as much plastic as phytoplankton, they were pumping plastic, and there was dioxin in every mother's breast milk because of what the aliens were doing, we would know what to do. But we get all confused because two reasons. One is because we identify with the system more than we identify with life. And the other is because we get access to ice cream 24-7. We're being bought off pretty damn cheap considering this is the planet who's being killed and the salmon who are being killed. There's 120 species went extinct today, and they're my kin. If we were human at all, if we hadn't been turned into flesh-eating zombies by this culture, we would fight back for our homes. My grandfather died of cancer. And I have Crohn's disease, which is a disease of civilization. Civilization is literally eating away at my guts. It's killing me. And if we were still human animals, we would fight back. I mean, the salmon here were so thick that the people were afraid to put their boats in the water for fear they would capsize. And the salmon are almost gone. If you walked into a bathroom and you saw that the water was overflowing the tub... What is the first thing you would do? Turn the faucet off, yeah. Yeah, but that's not what we do. And so the first thing we need to do is we need to break our identification with the system, and we need to identify more with the real physical world. And then we need to stop the oil economy using any means necessary. Yeah, you know, I'm personally really doing this, but um, I'm surrounded by people who seem to be conscious of, the dangers. I mean, it, it's really the information is available to all of Absolutely. us now. Absolutely, problem is not information. And yet, even some of my friends and family are just sort of resigned, and they just are sort of on on the rat wheel and just not taking the steps. I feel very sort of lonely in the level at which I'm making changes in my own life. It's not happening really all that quickly. It no. It doesn't no, seem not. to be happening at the rate it needs to happen to avert disaster, and it's really hard to take. Yeah, it's absolutely hard to take. The good news is that there are increasing numbers of people who are recognizing this. I mean, I will do talks where 600 people show up. It's not, there's, it's not you know, four of us lunatics who are thinking this. There are increasing numbers of people who are speaking and acting against this culture, and not just its excesses, but who are recognizing the depths of the problem. I'm really glad that you didn't censor yourself in any way in your writing, because your writing is very original in the way that you're mixing a lot of uh, scholarly research and personal narrative, and you do really have a gift. And you've written a lot of books in a short time. You really are prolific. But here, assuming that a lot of people don't read either fiction or nonfiction anymore, they're reading maybe some online stuff and the rest of the time they're just busy, um, this may be their only contact with you. And we're talking for one hour. So if you needed to really distill and condense to essences of your philosophy and your passion, what do you most want us to understand about ourselves, about what we're up against in the task at hand? I think we know what's going on. I mean, the world's being killed, and, and we're seeing it. It's almost impossible to ignore at this point. And what I'd want them to know is that the real world is real, and you can't eat money. Money's artificial, but this artificial system has real effects right now, and you still need to make a living. But that doesn't alter the fact that this system, I mean, it is insane to have a system of perpetual growth on a finite planet. It is insane to have a system based on consuming the planet that is your only home. The Tala Indians lived where I live now for at least 12,500 years, if you believe in science. And if you believe the Tala, they lived here since the beginning of time. But it doesn't matter because at the very minimum, they lived here for 12,500 years and they did not destroy the place. It is possible to live in place for a long, long, long time. The Talawa did it. Many other cultures did it. 
And so one of the first things I think we need to do is to recognize that there is another way to be. Why do you think that abusers cut off their abuse victims? One of the first things they do is break their social contacts. And one of the reasons they do that is because they need to convince the victims that there is no other way to be, that this is normal. And if they can normalize that behavior, they win. And this culture destroys all other cultures, in part in an attempt to normalize this behavior. And so many people think that's why they identify with civilization more than with life, because they identify civilization with life. But civilization is not life. This is one culture that has metastasized across the globe. And what would I want people to do? The first thing, it's like my friend, my doctor friend John Osborne always says, the first step toward cure is proper diagnosis. So what I would like for people to do is to start from that understanding or to ask themselves, ask, do we live in a democracy? I used to ask students at a conservative school, do we live in a democracy, a conservative college? And nobody ever said yes. I would say, do you believe that the government takes better care of corporations or human beings? And they would laugh because it's a stupid question. What happens if you internalize the understanding of that? What happens then? I was on a panel a year ago or two with Vandana Shiva and Kathy Pedler and this nun whose name I can't remember who does great anti-war work. And she, we were all on the stage. We all were in agreement that the United States is not a democracy. And everybody in the audience was in an agreement with that. It was all just absurd. And I turned to the, the, the nun and I said, if you fully internalize the implications of the fact that we don't live in a democracy, how would that affect your anti-war activism? And she looked back at me and she said, I don't know. It's a good question. And what would happen if we internalize that understanding? And what would happen if we really internalize the understanding that this culture is killing the planet? And what would happen if we internalize the understanding that this culture will not last. Any culture based on use of non-renewable resources won't last. And then what I would want people to do is something. What I would want people to do is to find what they love and then defend their beloved. We all have someone or something we love. If your issue is survivors of domestic violence, then work for that. If your issue is stopping rape, then work for that. If porn makes you really angry, then work to stop porn culture. If what you care about is salmon, then work to protect the salmon, work to remove dams, work to rehabilitate streams, work to stop logging. You know, so find some issue. And also, I love this question that my friend Carolyn Raffensperger asked, which is, what are the largest, most pressing problems that you can help to solve using the gifts that are unique to you and all the universe? What are the largest, most pressing problems that you can help to solve using the gifts that are unique to you and all the universe? So, for example... Um, my gifts are for writing. You know, some people ask, why are you writing instead of blowing up dams? And my only D in college was quantitative analysis, chemistry lab. I'm terrible with chemistry. I know people, on the other hand, who get off on explosives, and every time there's a new recipe, they make it in their kitchen, just for the heck of it. And that's another question. What do you get off on doing? I get off on writing. You know a guy, for example, he was a wetland specialist. We were trying to stop a developer working together, and he was out digging in some soil and rubbing it between his fingers to tell the color, and then you look on a chart, and it helps you determine whether it's wetlands. And he was doing this. I said, you get off on this? And he started laughing and said, yeah, it's my second favorite thing to do after playing with my dogs. And I started laughing and said, you know, this is crazy because I wouldn't like this at all. This is cool, actually, because I wouldn't like this at all. It's, this, is, this would not be my idea of a good life. But on the other hand, you know, I condemn myself to a life of homework because I get off on writing. <laughs> and so that's one reason I don't burn out. That's one reason I can write so much is because I love what I do. I mean, I love doing this deep green resistance workshop over the weekend, but i got to tell you, I'm glad it's done because I didn't get any writing done since Thursday. And for me not to get any writing done since Thursday, I mean, I don't take I don't take my birthdays off. You know, I don't take any days off because why would I take it off? Because I love what I'm doing. That's like taking a day off from making love or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I think I'll take a vacation. Um, and And so that's the thing, too, is to find what you really get off on, and then you're not going to burn out and we need it all we need people who will provide food for people during the crash and we need people to it's like harriet tubman you know we all know about her you know she went down and she helped rescue slaves and she carried a gun and but she didn't she didn't do it by herself there were also quakers who were pacifists who ran safe houses and there were others who ran safe houses so we need it all remember only two percent of the ira picked up weapons there was all this other support work and so I'm not a reform versus revolution kind of guy. I believe we desperately need reform, 
But if we don't have revolution, this culture is going to grind away till the end. And if all we do is wait for the great glorious revolution, and nobody does reform work in the meantime, then there's not going to be anything left anyway. We desperately need people working at rape crisis hotlines. But is that going to stop rape? No. That's going to help the survivors. We need people rehabilitating streams. Is that going to stop the primary destruction of streams? No. But we need it anyway. We need it all. And so here's one of the things I would want for the message to be is that Harriet Tubman said, you know, I saved hundreds of slaves, but I could have saved hundreds more if they would have recognized they were slaves. Wow. That's a great thing to remember. Yeah, it is. Well, I think that's what your work is, is chipping away at the chosen path of ignorance. You know, people just saying, oh, I don't have time for that. I don't want to know about that. The not wanting to know is pretty pervasive. You speak of the culture of make-believe, and I wonder what you mean exactly by the culture of make-believe. That's pretty much this whole culture. You know, we make-believe that we live in democracy. We make-believe that if we just buy a Honda Prius, that... uh, That'll help global warming. You know, 25% of all women in this culture are raped in their lifetime, and another 19% fend off rape attempts. That's 44% of women. And the women I know say that those figures are low, and they're actually much higher. And we pretend that that's not happening. That's, that's, a, that's a fucking epidemic. You know, if a man goes to prison, the first thing that, that happens in every, you know, prison movie, they get raped. But you know something? The rate at which women are raped in the culture at large is larger than the rate at which men are raped in prison. Derek, what is your understanding of the relationship between eroticism and violence? You know, you're speaking of, of rape, and that's just one manifestation, and it's connected with domination and power that we're already talking about. So what is it in the human being? You know, are we just fundamentally a flawed species? What is it that perpetuates this? Well, there have been cultures, there have been high-rape cultures and low-rape cultures. Not every culture has raped at this rate. And Peggy Reeve Sanday uh, did a great cross-cultural study of why are some cultures high-rape cultures and why are some cultures low-rape cultures. And, you know, it's not race. It's not wealth or poverty. Those aren't the indicators. The indicators, some of them are very obvious. Like if it's a highly militaristic culture, chances are really good it's going to have a higher rate. If men are valorized and women are are demeaned, chances are it's higher rape. And those are pretty obvious ones. But there's one that's very interesting to me. Well, there's two things that are interesting about this. One is that uh, one of the markers of a high rape culture is the history of ecological dislocation in the last four or 500 years. And what that suggests to me is that when a culture gets stressed, one of the ways it could manifest is in rape. One of the things that may happen is that women bear the brunt of that stress. But the thing I really wanted to point out with this is I really can't stand those books that attempt to naturalize rape and say that every human culture has had high rates of rape. That's, that's simply not true. And it's an example of what we're talking about earlier with abusers attempting to normalize their abuse. Oh, everybody rapes. Don't worry about it. It's just a natural thing. Well, that's simply not true. There are many cultures that did not have uh, rape. The Okanagans of British Columbia prior to contact um, they didn't have a word that meant violation of a woman. Then no, they did have a word that meant violation of a woman. It meant somebody looked at me in a way I didn't like. Um, but we're not both. talking only of rape. We're talking about the pornographic images, even in advertisements and movies, well, of, of the course. eroticism coupled with violence and oppression and domination well, is rampant in our culture and the cultures around the world. I spoke with Rian No, 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 no. Listen to what you just said. And the cultures. You can say, and many cultures. And many. You're right. But and that's my point. That's my whole point in bringing this whole little digression up is that it's not in the culture. It's not in all cultures. It's in many cultures. And, and we can also argue at this point that, like I think it was Mary Daly said, that at this point there's one religion in the world and it's patriarchy. You know, patriarchy's pretty much taken over most cultures. But once again, this is not human. But anyway, back. so go ahead, back to your question. I spoke with Rihanna Eisler a little less than a year ago, and she says that it's really been 5,000 years now of this regression to the domination side, and that is a lot of history. With the patriarchy having so much power and privilege, what's your vision of how this can be fundamentally turned around, do you think it can be, and what would that take? 
Well, a couple of things. One is that um, we won't see that turnaround on a big scale in our lifetime because of what Peggy Reeve Sanday said about a history of ecological dislocation in the last four or 500 years. What that says to me is that once the current culture falls, it will take several hundred years for any sort of egalitarian cultures to emerge. But in the meantime, you know, especially through collapse, because we're, we're undergoing collapse right now, and if you want to know what happens within a patriarchal culture when it collapses... Not pretty. Yeah, look at the Democratic Republic of Congo, where you have you know, mass organized rapes. Rates of rape go even higher. And so I think that as we go through this transition period, I think that what has to happen is I think that men and women have different roles to play through this collapse to protect women. And the role for women, I think, is um, I like the quote by Andrea Dworkin, my prayer for women of the 21st century is harden your hearts and learn to kill. Women need to defend themselves. And for men, what we need to do is to ally ourselves absolutely with women and to call out abusive behavior and to stop perpetuating the pornographic rape fantasies. I mean, one of the movies, On the Waterfront, Dr. Zhivago, Straw Dogs, what do they all have in common? And there's, there's a bunch of others, too. I just can't think of them in the moment. What they all have in common is they all contain the standard rape fantasy where a man starts to rape a woman, and then by the end of the scene, she has her arms around him pulling him close. You know, Dr. Zhivago, Evgraf starts to rape Lara, and by the end of the scene, she's got her arms around him. And... That's propaganda. That's pro-rape propaganda. We need to combat that on every level. You're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and I'm talking today with author, activist, and public speaker, Derek Jensen. We need to start believing women. The rates at which false rape accusations are made are about the same as the rate at which false burglary accusations are made, which is about 2%. I was doing a talk up in um, Vancouver, and during the Q&A, this woman stood up and said, I want to talk about hypocrisy in the environmental movement. And I said, okay. And she said, um, I was raped by, by an activist, and I want to talk about it. And I said, I believe you. And it was somebody I had interviewed, and I said to her, as soon as she said who it was, I said, you know what? I interviewed him. His interview was going to be in a book I have coming out in a few months. I'm pulling his interview from the book because I don't want a rapist in the book. And that's one of the things I think needs to happen. Is there needs to be social stigma associated with rape, believe it or not. And there needs to be social stigma associated with battering. Men need to say to other men, you know what, I heard you call your girlfriend a bitch. I'm not going to play basketball with you until I hear you apologize. That behavior needs to be called out and stopped. It's the exact same thing as what I was saying about shifting our alliance from civilization to the planet. We need to shift our alliance and our allegiance from perpetrators of rape and perpetrators of abuse to the abuse victims. And that's a process, and it doesn't mean that we always succeed at it. All of us screw up and do things that are still oppressive. Just a couple of days ago, and I said this at the Deep Green Workshop, but this is the first time I've said it in the Capitol Public. Just last week, I was driving along, and um, I got cut off by, I guess, what you'd call an asshole of color. And, um, I mean, they were really rude. And the first thing, instantaneously, the first thing I thought, I noticed their color. You know what? I didn't think that person's an asshole. I thought that person's a, okay, instantaneous. And the second thing I thought is, my God, that is really racist because this person is simply an asshole. It doesn't matter. They could be pink with polka dots and it doesn't matter. They're still an asshole. And what that let me know is how deep the racism is in this culture. I've written books about this. I've written a bunch of books about this, and that was my first response. And it's the same with pornography. It's the same with viewing women as objects. This culture is so deeply pornographic that it's in all of us. And the first thing we can do is it was a great thing happened yesterday at, at the workshops because this guy had said something about one of the things that we can do as the future goes on is we can go to indigenous people and say, can you help us figure out how to live? And several people three people, myself included, very nicely called him on this. It's like, for one thing, you know, indigenous peoples are not homogeneous or heterogeneous. Another thing is 
okay, you stole our land, you're stealing our way of life and our spirituality, and now you want us to tell you how to live? You know, fuck you. And the thing that was great about this was that this guy, the three of us, we all said it nicely. We didn't jump on him or anything. We just, you know, we said very, very nicely. And he did not get in the slightest defensive. And he then said, you know, I'm trained as an anthropologist, and there's stuff with anthropology that bothers me. And I'm so glad that all three of you have said this because you've helped me understand how I have been, as an anthropologist, I have been objectifying indigenous peoples. And so thank you so much for pointing this out to me. And then after he said that is when I said, I want to thank you for not being defensive and to, you know, sort of help normalize this understanding that we're all racist. You know, I want to tell you the story about getting cut off. And... And it was great because then other people were saying, yeah, and, you know, I'm racist in this way and I'm sexist in this way. And we didn't start wallowing that, nor were we reveling in being racist. We were acknowledging and saying the first step toward cures, proper diagnosis. And part of what we have to do is we have to acknowledge, yeah, you know what, I'm racist. And I was raised in, in this culture. I'm sexist, you know, I've, I've got that privilege. And um, Yeah, it sounds like that was actually a very therapeutic interchange. Oh, it's great. And it all happened because he had the uh, courage to not be defensive when some people said something. It could have gotten very, very ugly, and it didn't because of his courage and honesty. I live across the street from a big construction project that's been on since I moved in here. They're building a big green building project. This a group of people had protested the building of this building, I don't think we would have gotten very far. And this is what is happening all around the cities, which are the hearts of the civilization, where there's just constant construction going on. That's what they would call a city revitalization project. In terms of the activism, what do you think would be effective? What can we do? I mean, I, I really want to do something with my life, with my time here. I'm doing stuff like, you know, shopping at the food co-op and not buying so many things that I used to buy and removing plastics from my life. And it's not enough. It's not going to really do the trick. Well, and it's also, that's all personal. That has nothing to do with political, really. It's, yep. it's a personal level. I'm doing some more political things, too, and that's what I'm saying. A person only has so many hours of the day and so much life energy what is the most effective use of our time if we really want to avert disasters? Well, I can't say that for different people because I don't know what your skills are. You have an MFA in writing, right? Yeah. Yeah, so you would probably be better at writing, I'm guessing, you'd be better at writing than firearm skills, um, which doesn't mean that one can't both pick up pens and guns, but, you know, let's presume you have a gift for that. and. So you should use your writing, and you should speak out, and you should do exactly what you're doing right here. You know, this is part of the resistance, too. And we stopped the developer in this neighborhood. You know, you said that people would have protested it probably wouldn't work. Well, the way to guarantee it won't work is to not do it. Protest and try it and lose, and lose again lose again. But that's how you learn how to fight is by fighting and winning sometimes and losing sometimes and making mistakes and getting better. You know, we were able to pretty much stop the developer from destroying 20 acres of forest. I mean, the whole thing started because I saw something in the paper, a notice that they were going to apply for some permit, and I went and talked to neighbors I'd never talked to before. I just walked up the door, and I'm incredibly shy and introverted. But, so that was actually pretty difficult for me. But I just went up to the neighbors. I said, hey, um, this is happening. Do you want to oppose it? And fortunately, I've got a pretty long history of activism, 20 years of activism, and so I knew you know, various steps we could take, because a lot of the people had never done anything before, never done anything like this, and so they didn't know where even to start. I think that this is really good advice, actually, to just talk to your neighbors and get people who hold these fears about what's happening to the world and upset about the political situation in this country, in that most of us know it's not a democracy, um, and so forth, and really encourage people to get together. The thing that I want to talk a little bit more about is how Harden Your Hearts and Learn to Kill is still entering things on the terms of the patriarchy. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I couldn't it's, disagree more. There's no comparison between 
a man raping a woman and a woman killing a man who's raping her. No, this hardening of the heart, you see, I think that the opposite is what's needed. I think that we need to open our hearts more. We need to soften our hearts more. In other Toward words... Toward whom? Toward whom? And honestly, if you say we need to soften our hearts toward the rapist, the conversation's over. No, I'm not saying we need to soften our hearts more towards the rapist. I mean that as a culture, as a people, as a race, meaning that the whole human race, I disagree. what's needed is a more tender heart. What's needed is a more poetic soul and less violence and less hardening of the heart. I disagree. Why? Because... I have compassion for the salmon, and I have compassion for victims of rape, and I have compassion for survivors of rape, and I have compassion for migratory songbirds who are disappearing. Eighty percent of Bob Whites have the populations of Bob Whites have collapsed by eighty percent in the last forty years, and that's after Silent Spring when it already collapsed eighty percent. And people say all the time, "Oh, we have to have compassion. We have to have this. We have to have that." And it's always fucking code language for we have to have compassion for the abusers because everything in the abusive culture is set up to protect the abusers. And what we have to do is we have to learn to discern. And I have no compassion for perpetrators of abuse. I have compassion for them if they stop and if they make right what they made wrong, but in the meantime, they need to be stopped. I have no compassion for Ted Bundy. I have no compassion for Dick Cheney. And it is a huge, I think, a huge mistake to say we need to have more softness because, yes, this culture teaches us to be hard, but it teaches us to be hard to those below us on the hierarchy. It teaches us to be soft and compliant. Absolutely. What is school about? School teaches you to be compliant to those above you. And it teaches you to be compliant to those above you who may or may not deserve it. We need to have respect for elders. We need to have appropriate respect for authority. But we need to have, okay, the truth is, it's more complex. What we need is we need to have compassion for the people who deserve our compassion. And we need to not have compassion for those who are perpetrating. And I don't see any resistance here that is worth anything to stopping this culture from killing the planet. And we can all have nice, happy, open hearts, and that's great. We need I to love. But the love we need to have is a fierce love, and it's a fierce love that defends like a mother bear. And it's a fierce love. I've in my life been attacked. I grew up in the, in the country, and I've in my life been attacked by mother dogs, uh, horses, cows, cats, mice, spiders, hawks, eagles chickens, geese, who thought I was attacking their babies. And that is love and compassion. And yes, poetry is great and wonderful, and we need to have that. But war has been declared on the natural world. 98% of the native force are gone. And we need to fight like hell. That doesn't mean we all need to fight. Yeah, if what you, if what you need to do, and there is obviously deep love and compassion and softness and tenderness in my writing. And we need to be able to encompass all of that. I mean, Andrea Dworkin is not saying, harden your hearts and go learn to kill random people. She's talking about women fighting back against pornographers, against rapists. And we need to learn how to be appropriate and to have boundaries and to fight back when necessary and when appropriate and to not fight back when it's not appropriate. Wow. Well, we're deep into a very interesting conversation, and I think we're on the hinge, really, into sort of innocence and and guilt and who decides and who has the power to decide, and we could go on. The victims do. That's a pretty easy one. The victims have the power to decide. Yeah, I get this all the time, that that this happens. I mean, the, the forced defense culture is a rape culture. There are so many male forest defenders who have raped female forest defenders. And quite often, way too often happens, is that then the community will call a meeting and they'll say, okay, we need to get back together after this trauma. So we need to welcome both of you back into the community. You need to each express your perspective on what happened. 
And, no, no, and no, one no. of the things that inevitably the men say is, well, wait a second. Who gets to decide whether it was rape or not? And it's like, okay, easy answer. The woman does. So that's who gets to decide is the victim. And that doesn't also the fact, yes, I understand that perpetrators of abuse always consider themselves victims. I mean, for crying out loud, Germany, when they invaded Poland, they said they'd been attacked first. The United States invades Iraq. Why? Because self-defense is bullshit, you know. They invade Afghanistan. Why? Self-defense. Bullshit. They invade Vietnam. Why? Self-defense. Bullshit. The fact that, that an argument is constantly misused, it means, once again, that we are sentient beings and we need to discern. I mean, I need to be really clear, too, that the way we stopped this developer was we didn't shoot him in the head, much as I fantasize about that every day. What we did is we poured through county zoning regulations, which is incredibly boring work. We did all this work with, you know, maps and plats, and we went through the um, California Department of Forestry's rules for timber harvest, and it was incredibly tedious work, but necessary work. And so it ends up we need to take whatever approaches are necessary and to open our hearts to those that we wish to have our hearts open to. And I open my heart to the slender salamanders, that's the species, the slender salamanders who live on that land and the coho salmon and the redwoods and the Port Orford cedars. And I did not open my heart to this developer who was, you know, at one time a child and certainly has his own issues that caused him to become a fucking psychopath, you know, who destroys land for money. Well, there you have it. I mean, there's a lot of insanity. There's a lot of addiction. I volunteer at the local hospital. I've been at the bedside of prisoners. Uh, One man was crying. Um, He says, I'm bipolar. I'm diabetic. My son was sick. I went and, and I did rob the store. It wasn't the first time. I was just going to get some cough medicine for him. He's chained to the bed. You know, I don't... I don't know if he's having a bipolar episode. I don't know if he's in the middle of a world of his own making. And we are dealing with a lot of mental illness, instability, psychopathology, addiction. And it's sometimes very difficult to discern who's doing what to whom. But I so appreciate the clarity and the clarion call of your work and your writing. And I do hope our listeners will go and get your books and really hear what you have to say in detail. Well, thanks. Thanks for joining me. 